In Ephesians chapter 4, the first three chapters, Paul is essentially uh, describing everything that's going on within the faith, and then he kind of lines it up in chapter 4 with saying, hey, as a result of all that, here are some important things. And he starts in verse 2 with saying, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Let me just pause right there. This ain't part of my notes, but I think it's important to understand that God has called us to be patient and long-suffering with one another, which means if you make an offense, give room for that person to make it up. Don't just shout at them. Don't just scream at them. You know, I've had moments where people have done really horrible, mean things to me, and instead of reacting in the moment, I gave grace. I gave them a moment, and when cooler heads prevailed, things got better. And so we're so quick to, to be defensive or to defend ourselves that we often fail to create unity. And so here, what the author of Ephesians is saying is, hey, we got to learn to be patient with each other. We got to learn to be humble. We got to learn to make allowance, make room for people because they're people. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to have faults. But make room because of your love. And then he says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. He's saying, listen, have you made every effort? Have you exhausted every resource to make sure that there is unity and there's peace? You know, sometimes one of the easiest ways to maintain unity and peace is saying, I'm sorry. Even when you're not at fault. There have been plenty of times where I've said, I'm sorry, not because necessarily I felt guilty, but I felt the other person's offense. I don't feel I did anything wrong, but nonetheless, you're offended. And I need to apologize. And sometimes it's not even a big deal. But if, if a quick apology solves the situation and allows us to move forward, great. Now, I don't get away with that with my wife. She, she wants details. So she might say something like, hey, babe, no, I get it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And she goes, no, I want to explain. No, I understand, babe. I'm sorry. And she goes, no, I want to tell you why I'm mad. Okay, tell me why you're mad. And then she goes through this whole spiel that I already knew. And then I go, I'm sorry. Right? She obviously wanted to share it. But here's the deal, sometimes we can maintain peace and unity with simple gestures, with lowering of your pride and saying, hey, you know what, I love you more than I wanna allow this to cause any kind of division or separation. And so he kind of ties that up, but then he says something interesting, and this is what one of our young adults caught on, and this is where I wanna really dive in, because in the next couple of verses, verse four through six, he kind of gives the reason for us to have to be united. Right? The first few verses, he's imploring for you to maintain unity, do everything you can to have unity. And then in the next three verses, he gives you reasons why we are united. He gives you reasons to understand there is more that unites us than there are things that divide us. And if you look at verse 4, it says, For there is one body, one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. One, 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 one. He keeps reiterating the important understanding that, listen, we're united by one thing. And there might be a million things that divide us, but that one thing that unites us is so much more important. And then he begins to dive into it. And I want to take just a few minutes to help remind us, because I do think you know but it's important to be reminded of the things that unite us because often we're reminded of the things that divide us. So if you're taking notes, the one thing I notice he says in the beginning, he says, hey, we have one spirit. We have one spirit, right? There's only one body bound in the spirit. 
This is important to understand that there's one body and one spirit because that tells us something very important. There is only one church, right? There's not Beaumont Assembly and Chicago Tabernacle and City Lights and Good Shepherd and no, no, one church, the church of God, right? One church, the church of Jesus Christ. Big C is often what we'll say within church circles when we want people to understand. When I mean, hey, the church, I'm talking about the big church, the big picture. We are one church. And this is such a vital key to understand because oftentimes we can find division amongst each other. Oh, I don't like the way that church does this and I don't like that that church has that policy and my church is great or I don't like my church and I love that church. And we start getting into this and Paul had to deal with this, right? There were people who were arguing, well, I serve Paul and I serve Apollos. And, and he's like, listen, we all serve Christ. Stop getting caught up in which pastor is yours and start getting caught up in which Jesus is yours. Like we have the same Christ. We are one church. And so we celebrate when that church has a win, that's our win. When we have a win, that's their win. We are one church in Christ. And if we don't get that, if we start to cause division among that and think because we're different denominations that somehow we're not under the same umbrella, then we're going to be really confused when we see those congregants in heaven. Because we're going to wonder, wait, how did you get in here? You went to that church. Listen, I love that there's diversity among churches. Because some people love big churches, some people love small churches. Some people like uh, certain kinds of worship, other people like a different kind of worship. Some people uh, are involved in this kind of program and another church is excellent at that kind of program. You know, God, he uses that diversity in really cool ways in order to attract all kinds of people. As, as Paul said, right, I'm all things to all people for Christ's sake. So there's this beautiful diversity among the church. But don't allow that diversity to confuse you into thinking we're different. Right? Because my right hand and my left hand might look the same, but they're very different and they're both very important. And so here he's reminding us listen, there is one spirit, one body, one church. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 12 says, Therefore, you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like minded having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. This is something that a lot of pastors, if we can just be transparent, we have to guard ourselves from because insecurity can well up because a family that you're really connected to now started going to this church or to that church and, and you feel like they left you and, and sometimes we can take it to the extreme, like, well, they left God. Listen, I, I've tried to grow in my understanding and, and just hoping, listen, I don't care where they go as long as they're serving God. You know, and, and most of the time what people don't understand is we all talk to each other among our churches, like especially local churches. We know when we're swapping stories and they'll call us up and be like, hey, what about so-and-so? I'm like, hey, so-and-so's great, wonderful person, just probably needing a fresh start. They're really great at this and this and that, but hey, I'll let them speak for themselves. But yeah, we, we can't say anything but good things about them. We miss them, right? We talk to each other because at the end of the day, this is one church. I don't hope you fail because you left. And I don't want to ever look at the church down the street as the competition. They're the reinforcements. We're here on the same team. I often think about this when we're playing basketball and the same team is fighting over the one rebound and you got to yell out, same team, same team, so that we can understand, hey, pack off. We're, we're trying to do the same goal here. We are one in spirit, one church, one glorious hope for the future. What's that glorious hope? That we would all be reunited in heaven because one day, we will all be in one church in heaven. 
We will all be worshiping the same song. We will all be standing before the same God. We will all be lifting the same hands, giving honor and glory to he who is there. And can I just say, it goes so far beyond the United States, right? It is not the church of the United States. It is the church of God. So it encompasses everything. I want the church in China to thrive. I want the church in Palestine and in Israel to thrive. I want the church in Africa to thrive. I want to see God move all across the land, which means America does not have a monopoly on what church should look like and act like. And so often, if we're not careful, because we're kind of stuck in our own bubble and our own echo chambers, we can get tunnel vision and we can think, hey, this is church. Church has to be like this. And instead of spreading the gospel, we spread our culture. And we say, hey, this is how you're supposed to do church. Listen, there are some churches in some parts of the world where it's common to have every service be six hours. Praise God for that church. That's not my church. I can't do six hours. I can't preach for four and a half hours. You don't want to hear me that long anyway. But I'm not going to be mad because that's how they do church. I love when I go to other parts of the world and I get to visit other churches because there's this amazing feeling. If you've never done it, when you travel, if you get to travel anywhere outside of the United States, make sure you visit a church. Make sure you visit a Bible-believing church. The Assembly of God is one of the biggest churches in the world. And so there's always an Assembly of God church within somewhere. And for me, the beauty is when I walk into that church... And I'm worshiping with those people, even if it's a different language, I still feel like I'm at home. More than any other part of that country I'm ever in, when I'm in the church, man, I'm home. Whether that was in Vietnam or in England or in uh, South America, it doesn't matter because when I walk into the church, I'm like, hey, big C, these are my people. This is my family. Are you feeling me on that? We need to pray for the unity of all believers. He goes on to say, that there's not just one spirit, but he says there is one Lord. This is an interesting thing. The church of Ephesus, it obviously struggled with unification. And if you study a little bit about Ephesus, it's not surprising why. Ephesus was a major port city. It was huge in commerce, which means it drove in a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. And so it was very culturally mixed. You had Jews, Gentiles, and everything in between. You just had a huge mix of people. And so the birth of the church in Ephesus, you're going to have a lot of issues in bringing all these different kinds of people into the same room. If you think about it, since the inception of the Jews, they've been taught to not associate with other cultures, to never intermarry, to to even dust off the sandals when you walk out of certain areas because those aren't God's people. For centuries, right, generation after generation, they have been trained to do this. And now all of a sudden, Christ tears down those walls. Christ opens the door for the Gentiles. And now they have to wrap their mind around, hey, no, we got to be together now. This is a mental hurdle for a lot of them. And Paul understood that. Many of them, if they did go away from that, like the Samaritans did, who were half Jewish and half with the people of Samaria, they were outcasted. So this is, again, something they have to wrap their mind around. And then for the Gentiles, well, they have no history with this God. And so for them, I imagine if you're coming into this building, you got no history, no reason to have to be within this church. And the people in that building and that church aren't making you feel welcome. There's no historical context for you to want to stick around. You're like, listen, I've lived my whole life without this God. And if this is what this God is all about, then I don't need him. So this is a very vital thing. I think that's why in the New Testament, over and over again, in almost every book, you catch the theme of unity. 
It's being driven in every single time, reminding them we got to stick together. We have to stay united despite all of our histories and backgrounds. We have one Lord and one faith, our faith in Christ. That Lord is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's our faith in Christ that is the ultimate unifier despite all of the different differences we have among each other. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 through 11 it says, don't lie to each other. Since you've been taken off your old self with its practices and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of its creator, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. He's saying, listen, all those background identifiers that you used to mark off for yourself, those don't exist anymore. When you get into the kingdom of heaven, you don't have to check off black, white, non-Hispanic, Asian, Pacific Islander. None of that matters to God. It's you're his or you're not his. You belong to the body of Christ or you don't belong to the body of Christ. It's very simple in God's eyes. We just keep coming up with different ways to create different divisions. And even within cultures where, where, you know, there was no other outside forces, every culture somehow manages to figure out a way to divide. Oh, well, we might be all the same culture and all the same race, but you're, you're just a little darker than, than I am. Or your hair just, it's, it's shaped a little bit differently, so you're less than than I am. And what God is saying is, no, we are all now one in Christ. Your background, who you used to be, what you identified with, it all comes behind who you identify with in Christ. And so I'm not a Hispanic Christian. I'm a Christian who's Hispanic. My nationality does not identify me before my Christianity. And so this is where Christ comes before anything else. Before I'm a man, I'm a Christian. Before I'm a father, I'm a Christian. Before I'm, you know, a millennial, or I don't know why suddenly I'm categorized as a geriatric millennial, which is the weirdest micro term I've ever heard. I'm a geriatric millennial, like the oldest of the millennials. But I'm like, I don't care what you, because every year they like label me. I remember when I used to just be Hispanics, then I was Latin, then I was Latinx, and now they keep coming up. I'm like, whatever, bro, I'm Christian. <laughs> I'm a Christian before I'm anything else. And all those other things, those are great. I love them. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about it at one point at our church. I remember uh, we started doing this during missions convention where we would hang flags on the rafters. And one particular year we said, hey, listen, if your flag is not represented here on these rafters, let us know and we'll order the flag of your country because we want everybody to be represented here. And so let us know and, and we'll get it. And I had a game going on. This is just a personal game that I would play where I would walk into the sanctuary when nobody was around and I would try to figure out which flag was from which country. I tell you, if I got 50%, I was lucky, and I'm pretty good at it. I would look it up. I'd try to figure out. I'd Google like what it looked like to try to see what it is, and I love that about our church because at one point, we had over 66 different flags hanging in those rafters, 66 distinct backgrounds, foods, histories, dialects, perceptions, cultures, backgrounds, and we were all worshiping in the one same room. I love that there's Hispanics and Asians and blacks and whites and everything. And, and I love that I didn't even realize it half the time. Because it's not really a big deal to me. But I love it. Right? I love it because, just on the side note, this has nothing to do with, with Jesus as much. I just think it's great. 
Man, the food alone is worth going to a church like this. You know what I'm saying? Like the other day I needed a little Filipino hookup. I called one of the authors. I said, hey, listen, where's this best spot? You know, because I'm looking for some toron. Where can I get some? Oh, you got to go to this little shop on this spot? Okay, I got you. Best Italian food I ever had, Sebastian's house. Man, that man and his woman made the best eight-course meal. I'm like, listen, I'll make reservations every year for this house. And I love it because food is one of those ultimate unifiers. Because when you sit down and you share a meal, I think that's why in Acts 2.42, you see them say they shared everything in common and they broke bread together. I think the early church probably used that common meal as a way to remind, hey, listen, we can share this food and remind ourselves that we're still one and we're still together. I love that we're one in Christ. I love the differences, but I also love that those differences don't come before our commonalities. He says that we are one in spirit, we're one in the Lord, and we're also one in the Father. If you go on to read, as we were going back into it, it says, one in the Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. I love that illustration of the Father. I mentioned on Mother's Day that my wife and I are expecting our second child in August. Now that I got two, I'm reminded of something that my mom and dad always, always emphasize with us. And I, I believe this, that a father's heart is that his children would love each other, that his kids would look out for each other. Me and my sisters had epic battles. Some of you have heard those stories with Pastor Evelyn and the mean, horrible things she did to poor Pastor Joey over the years. You need to pray for this woman. She needs redemption for everything she's done to me. But God, if I don't love my sister... God, if I don't love all my sisters. And this is something that my parents drilled into. I mean, no one has physically maimed me as much as my sisters. But no one has loved me as much as them either. They're my sisters. And I always saw it in my parents' eyes. Hey, look out for your sister. Hey, call your sister. Hey, check up on them. Check in on your brother. Make sure your brother's okay. Hey, your brother's looking for this. Can you help him? My mother always fought. My father always fought for us to be united. And I think about that now with my children. And I love that they're less than two years apart because immediately I felt now they'll always have each other. God forbid something happens to me and mom, I hope they'll always have each other. They'll always have that bond and that connection and that deepening to know I have you. Because in this world, we just need people. We need somebody to be there with us. And what I love about the body of Christ, especially for those of you who are single children, is that you find brothers and sisters in this room, in the body of Christ, that become family because we all share the same father. We all have been adopted into the same family. And so whatever differences we have, whatever, you know, things we've done to maybe hurt one another purposely or accidentally, at the end of the day, you're still my brother and you're still my sister in Christ because we share the same father. Romans 15 verse 5 through 6 says, may God who gives this patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other as it is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that saying? That what will give joy and honor to God is when we're all united in one voice. That what pleases God is when we're all together. And again, going back to my family, my parents' greatest joy is when we're all in the same room together. 
when we're all just eating together, hanging out together, just being together. I think for me, that's why Thanksgiving has always been my favorite holiday. Because I don't care about presents. I just love being with you guys. Again, sharing some food, but being with you guys. And being able to hang out and being able to laugh and being able to be there for each other. And it's the same reason why I love being here. I love being with my family. I love getting to see you. I love getting to talk to you. I love getting to find out what's been going on in your life. I love praying with you because we care about each other. And you sense that when you're in the family of God. As a father, one of my greatest fears is that my children would allow something to separate them. I would be grieved if my sisters allowed some boy to get in between them. I would be grieved if my children allowed some dispute to cause them to no longer speak to each other. I would be grieved, heartbroken, and saddened if my children didn't like each other. I feel, though, it's the same way with our Lord, that when we allow differences to cause division among the body, when we look at stuff, and listen, I, I am not exempt. There are plenty of people in the body of Christ that I've had major issues with that God had to help me with. People that annoy me, people that frustrate me, people that have angered me. I remember through the years, luckily this is before I was even a pastor, there were moments I'd walk into the church with trembling because of how much I despise certain people. But God, by his grace, helped me process that, deal with that, heal from that, because ultimately it was my issue, it wasn't their issue. It was what I had to deal with. It's what I had to process with. And by God's grace, he let me, and he gave me the room to figure that out and to get better at it. And a lot of the people, especially when I'm thinking about shaking, they're, they're my friends now. We're fine. Why? Because what unites us is so much greater than what divides us. What brings us together in love is so much stronger than what might try to divide us in hate. This is why I believe, Pastor Jason, if you can help me out, we see this theme in these three verses, right? He says, let me just kind of read it back if you guys can help me out with that verse. In Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, it says, For there is one body, one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope in the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. One, one, one equals three. There was one spirit, one Lord in Jesus Christ, and one Father. You see the fingerprints of the Trinity in this verse. And the Trinity is the most important, one of the most important theological ideologies of a believer. This is what separates us from everybody else. This is what makes us different, is that we have three in one, that we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three entities, one God. The Holy Spirit, the Trinity, is the ultimate symbol of unity. Three distinct characteristics, three distinct identifiers, and yet one God. The love of the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit, the grace of our Lord and Savior, one God. I think that's why in John chapter 17, as Jesus was getting ready to make his final ascension into heaven, having defeated death, been resurrected, and already shown himself to multiple, multiple people, he gathers together with his disciples and he makes one final prayer. And in any kind of movie that you see, your show that you see, there's a great importance on somebody's last words. 
Now, I don't think these were obviously Jesus' last words. He's alive, talking all the time. But these are the last words he gives to his disciples in that, on this earth. So there's weight to what he's trying to communicate to them. And he could have said anything. He could have sat there and, hey, listen, I'm going to one by one go through each of your faults and give you encouragement. Or, hey, I'm going to remind you to do this or that. Or, hey, don't forget when I talked about that. I mean, he could have gone through any lesson. But he chooses to reemphasize the importance of unity. And then he makes this prayer. And it's interesting in verse 20 through 21 how he says it. He says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, the 11 that were there, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That means you and me. That means every believer on earth, in any part of the country, in any part of the world, this prayer is meant for them. Every single one of us have been included in this prayer. That's a big prayer. So what's your prayer there, Lord? I pray that they will all be one. This is a huge glimpse into the heart of our Lord and Savior. That we would all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, I am in you, and may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. We have to be together if we're going to accomplish the gospel mission. The world won't believe Jesus is who he says he is if we can't be united on who he says he is, if we can't be united in what he called us to do. His prayer was that we would all be in one. Now, some scholars take this a step further. I think this is an interesting thought. He says, I pray that, I, that they would be one as you and I are one, I and you, Father, and you and me, would they be one in us? Notice in this moment, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit per se. Not specifically. But there are some scholars that take it a stretch to say that because you and I are sealed with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit has its dwelling place in us, we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. That we, in a certain extent or a certain point of view, become part of the Trinity of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit with us. We have been united with Christ by grace through faith because of Jesus, but with the Holy Spirit that seals that salvation. In a sense, we're part of the unity of heaven. We're part of the unity of this Trinity, which is such a profound and powerful statement to make. It's such a powerful thing that as a church, we need to pray and echo the same prayer of our Lord to make sure that there is no division among the body. And that's the body as a whole, not Belmont Assembly of God alone, the church of Jesus Christ all over the world. That whether you're in the UK or in France or in China, or in Africa, or in Zimbabwe, or in Colombia. Because there are believers all across this planet. And every single one of them is your family and my family. And I can't wait till that amazing family reunion we're going to have in heaven. So we need your help tonight. 
Because this is the kind of thing that Jesus knew would only be accomplished through prayer. It's not going to be by just telling each other, hey, come on, let's be united. Because when those moments of division come up, they're powerful. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us stay united when somebody offends us. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us stay united when we have theological debates. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us stay united when we're angry with one another or offended by someone. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to keep us moving forward as one the way he desired for it in this prayer.